John 19, verse 18, our beginning, as we consider the king on the cross. John 19, verse 18 through 27, the king on the cross. If you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you stand with me now, please? Here they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Let's pray. Father, there are no way to read this scripture without being sober-minded. Without taking some pause for who we are and what we have done. For who you are and what you have done. And for who Jesus is and what he has done. And God, we proclaim that Jesus is the king. Not just the king of the Jews, but the king of this world. It's creator, it's sustainer, it's redeemer. And we pray, as always, that as we open your word, you would speak to us today by your spirit. And we pray that if there's anyone here who's not trusted Christ as their Savior, that they would make that commitment today, confessing their own sinfulness, agreeing that Jesus is your Son, and asking Him to save them forever. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Our text today, we take a look not unlike we have on some of these others from the perspective of folks that were there. And applying it to ourselves and asking ourselves these questions in consideration. But before we move ahead, we do have our scripture memory verse for the month. And the scripture memory verse for the month is a summary statement written by Peter of what Jesus did for us. Let's read it together. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. 1 Peter 3.18. The purpose of Jesus' death is to bridge the gap that our sinfulness created with God. And as a righteous, perfect sacrifice, only Jesus could do that. Not anything we could do could earn or deserve the eternal gift of salvation that God gives. Only Christ, a perfect sacrifice, could do that. And here today, this text summarizes for us Jesus, the King, on the cross. Your first point on your outline is that Jesus is King no matter your treatment of Him. Jesus is king no matter your treatment of him. Each one of these points begins with Jesus is king no matter. You'll see that on your outline. And my point is that no matter our perspective on Jesus, it does not change who he is. And this text and the entire Bible demonstrates that to us. That Jesus is king no matter your treatment of him. Verse 18, they crucified him with two others. One on each side and Jesus in the middle. Jesus was crucified. A common Roman punishment. They were generally tied or sometimes nailed. Scripture doesn't say of Jesus, but the post-resurrection stories seem to indicate that they saw the piercings, not in his hands as we say, but it would have to be actually in his wrists so that it would hold his weight when he was on the cross But hands and wrists were referred to non-scientifically in the same way at that time. That's why we see it recorded scripturally that way. But he was crucified with two others. Criminals, Luke says in the Greek, specifically uh, robbers, Mark and Matthew say in the Greek. And it just says here, two others. Jesus was scarcely a criminal, not even treasonous, yet he was rejected and condemned by those who should have received him, the Jewish people, and led to the Romans in order to see this punishment carried out. Now, for my point here, we skip ahead in our text to verse 23 and 24. Notice it's that no matter what we do, but look at verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. The soldiers, there were a special name for them, beginning with quad, quadrinian, uh, meaning four. And so this squad of soldiers, four guys, and Jesus, as a common Jewish person, would have five items of clothing belonging to him. He would have sandals. He would have a... um, what do you call this thing on your head? Um, yeah, turban. He would have a belt, a tunic, or outer uh, an outer garment, then an inner garment, like a um, you know long bathrobe type thing. And so there were five pieces of clothing with four soldiers. These soldiers were so used to doing what they were doing that. The fact that this gruesome death was taking place right there behind them was nothing to them. What they were doing was taking advantage of the situation. This guy had these five pieces of clothing. There's four of us, all right? We each get one. Who needs the sandals? Who needs this? Who needs that? And, ooh, look, this guy's got a fancy undergarment. 
This isn't multiple pieces. This is woven from one piece of cloth. Rather than tear it up and ruin it, let's gamble and see who gets it. Go back to my point on your outline. That Jesus is king no matter your treatment of him. No matter whether you know who he is, no matter whether you care who he is, no matter whether you treat him with kindness and love or treat him with cruelty and hate or just indifference, he's still king. And these men at his feet were gambling for his clothing. John adds at the end of verse 24 that this happened, that Scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and casting lots for my clothing. You probably have a footnote that tells you that that's from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. Another one of those very specific prophecies of Jesus. Another reason we know that he's the king. We know that he was prophesied because too many things, hundreds of them over his lifetime, were specifically prophesied and specifically fulfilled. So your sub-point there is your cruelty does not change his sacrifice. No matter how you treat Jesus, indifferent or even outright cruel, hateful, despicable, treacherous, your cruelty does not change his sacrifice. No matter how mean you are to Jesus, no matter how you spit vile words at him or about him or his followers or his word, the Bible, it doesn't change the fact that he gave his life to pay the penalty for your sins. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. God loves you that way. So your question asks, what's the worst thing I've done to Jesus? Well, uh, I didn't crucify him. I mean, you know, that was like 2,000 years ago, and that's kind of gross, and I wouldn't do that sort of thing. I'm not that kind of mean. But think about it. What's the worst thing you've done to Jesus? Have you betrayed him? You could have bared testimony to his name, yet you turned and didn't say anything. Have you spoken ill against him? Have you used his name in vain? Have you committed a sin, any sin? All of us have. What's the worst thing you've done to Jesus? We think of crucifixion as the worst thing that anyone could have done to him, but we have all sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And those sins led to Jesus' death. And those sins will lead to our death unless we trust him as our personal Savior and Lord. So he's the king no matter how we've treated him. Let's move on on your outline. The second major point for you there is that Jesus is king no matter your motives. No matter your motives in relation to Jesus, no matter your motives in relation to the cross, no matter your motives when you consider Christianity, Jesus is still king. Verse 19, verse 19, that Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, um, each of the Gospels record this slightly differently. We know the Bible is not a strictly scientific book. It's not a report, you know, or a doctoral dissertation or anything like that, where everything has to be absolutely perfect. And so it's not uncommon that, you know, people, when they read a sign, would get a few words wrong. But the basic of all four Gospels is the same, that 
Pilate wrote down that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate's motive in proclaiming him king of the Jews was to put it in the face of his Jewish um, subjects who he knew were trying to frame Jesus. But also, Pilate put he is the king of the Jews so it would look like Jesus was treasonous, so he would have the legal protection should anybody come back against him and say, hey, you shouldn't have killed that guy. So Pilate was both going after the Jewish leaders and protecting himself, right? Legally. So his motives were not good to say that Jesus is the king of the Jews. But think about it. Whether his motives were right or not, His statement was true. Whether he believed it was true or not, it was true. That Jesus is the king no matter what your motives, no matter what you're thinking behind the scenes. Look at verse 22. The chief priest had confronted him about this, and he says, What I have written, I have written. I'm not changing it, he says. I don't care what you guys think. He exposed their folly. And though he was weak-willed and didn't keep Jesus from being crucified as he had the uh, power to, now he stands up to them with the little spine that he has and says, what I've written, I've written. Your first sub-point there is that your will does not change his sovereignty. Whatever you think about Jesus... Whatever your motive is in consideration of Jesus doesn't change the fact that he is king, that he is sovereign. Sovereign means that he has rule. Sovereign means that he has reign. He has authority and the power to carry this out. No matter what you think does not change that about Jesus. You can think anything you want. It doesn't change it. Hebrews 9, 12 says of Jesus, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus is sovereign and sinless and paid the penalty for our sins with His blood on the cross. But we don't treat Jesus that way. All of us at times have motives in the way we use Jesus. Yes, I said that. We try to use him for our purposes, which leads to your next question. Your question there is, what would I like Jesus to do? If Jesus was, you know, a heavenly genie in a lamp and you could rub the lamp and Jesus would come out. You could say, Jesus, I want my wish. I only get three wishes, you know what I mean, like the you know, Aladdin story or whatever. If you could make Jesus do anything you wanted him to do, what would it be? Well, some of us have some dreams or fantasies or wishes. We're like, man, I really wish I had a house like this, or I really wish I had this car. I really wish I was married to a person like this, or I wish I had like $10 million. All of us have some sort of conception of something we'd like Jesus to do for us that most of the time we know, ah, well, you can't ask Jesus to do that, but sometimes it's like, really wish Jesus would change this about this person. Well, what does he need to change about you that you're not willing to change? I really wish that I could have a job like that. Well, is there anything he's told you to do in order to prepare yourself that you might have a job like that? All of us have motives that sometimes are not good in the way we relate to Jesus. And my point is to show us from Pilate's motives, that we have motives as well. 
for us to consider our sinfulness in the face of Jesus as a king. 1 Peter 2.24 says of Jesus that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds we are healed. And no matter what our motives are, no matter what we're thinking we might get from Jesus, we need to be reminded of that, that Jesus gave himself for us that we might receive righteousness. Friends, we need to confess our sinfulness in relation to our motives with Jesus. So he's king no matter our treatment of him. He's king no matter our motives. Our third major point, Jesus is king no matter your understanding. No matter what you know about Jesus, no matter what you think about Jesus, he's still king. Look at verse 20. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, the common language they spoke, Latin, the lingua franca of the uh, you know, Roman world, and Greek, the more precise language. So it was written in these three languages, and it was not uncommon, as I talked about last week, to have a sign on a cross saying, here's the reason this person's being crucified uh, legally, but also as a deterrent. So if you were thinking about robbing something, and you walk by a couple guys that says, hey, they were robbers, and they're on a cross, you might think, maybe I don't want to rob anything. You're thinking about you know, doing any kind of uh, terrible sin that might be illegal, and you see somebody's been crucified for that, it might straighten you up a little bit. But Jesus, his sign was written that he was the king of the Jews, so that people would know why he was there, no matter the motive of Pilate in putting it that way. We all have different understandings or ideas about who Jesus is based on our experience, based on what we've learned from the Bible. But it doesn't change the truth of who he is. That's your sub-point there. Your opinion does not change his truth. What you think about Jesus, what you don't think about Jesus, what you know about Jesus, what you don't know about Jesus, doesn't change who he is. He's still Jesus. He's still God's son. He's still sovereign. He still died on the cross to save you from your sins, whether you admit you're a sinner or not, whether you admit he's Lord or not, no matter your understanding of him, it does not change the truth of who he is. In John chapter 3, and I'm going to turn back there. You might want to join me as well. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That God gave us all the opportunity to believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Look at verse 17 of John 3. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. But whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Jesus is king no matter your understanding of him. And your opinion does not change that truth. So let's ask a question here on our third point. And that question is, who do I wish Jesus was? 
This is a little bit like the last question. What could he do for me? But who do I wish he was? If I could make Jesus into any person or anything, if I could have my way, who would Jesus be? We may not want to admit it, but all of us have treated him that way at times, haven't we? With our own motives, with our own thoughts. We've been raised in a world where you manipulate people, where you don't tell the whole truth, where you try to do whatever you can to get things your way, to look out for number one. It's human nature. It's our flesh. It's sin nature. And sometimes we take that attitude even to Jesus, the king, and we treat him as if he is someone to be manipulated or not to tell the truth to. Would you turn back to 1 John with me? 1 John, towards the very back of your Bible, so if you go to Revelation and you swing a left just a few pages, you're going to get to 1, 2, 3 John there. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, so John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, now writing these three small epistles, is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's telling them, here's what you need to know about who Jesus is. And that he's paid the price for our sins, a righteous sacrifice. But look at verse 2. 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Who do I wish Jesus was? It doesn't matter your understanding of him. Your opinion does not change the truth of who he is. What does the Bible say that he is? Or, excuse me, who does the Bible say he is? Right there, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not just those of you in Ephesus who I'm writing to, John, not just those of you at Southview Baptist Church who hear me now, church, but everybody, it says, the entire sins of the world. That's who Jesus is. That's why he's king. That's why we worship him. That's why we serve him. That's why we call ourselves by his name, Christians, little Christs, because of who he is. If you're in 1 John chapter 2, you might need to turn the page like I do to chapter 3, verse 5. 1 John 3, 5, look at what it says there. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Jesus, completely righteous, came to pay the price for everyone who ever lived and everyone who ever sinned to atone for their sins, to take away our sins, to give us a right relationship with God. I love the scripture, Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23, you can do a simple bridge illustration with. I've done it on a whiteboard, I've done it on paper, I've done it on a napkin, I've done it in the sand. I can do it in the sky right here in front of you, right? 
The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That all of us, our sin earns us the wage of death. Because all of us have done wrong, that sin earns us the wage of death. And if you look at that like a cliff, you're on one side. But on the other side is the gift of God that is eternal life. And imagine these two cliffs and these two cliffs and there's no way to get across. Nothing good you do can span the gulf greater than that of the Grand Canyon. But that scripture says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's when you draw a cross as a bridge between the two sides of the canyon. That Jesus is the bridge that leads you to eternal life. Jesus is the bridge and the the way that you get saved. Jesus paid the price for your sins. He's king no matter our understanding. Our opinion doesn't change who he is. And anyone, no matter who they are, all of us as sinners can trust him as our savior. Because that's who Jesus is. So no matter your treatment of him, no matter your motives about him, no matter your understanding of him, the fourth major point on your outline is that Jesus is king no matter your desire. No matter your desire, no matter what you want in the situation, no matter what you want in relation to him, go back to verse 21. Verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. They just wanted a little word in there inserted. You know, I'm sure that if they could have, they'd have crawled up on the cross and, you know, kind of scribbled in there, claimed like graffiti. But uh, for whatever reason, they're Roman soldiers, Jesus on there. They couldn't, they didn't. They complained that take that, off there that way, just make it that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. You know, Judaism was hierarchical and traditional, and Jesus upset everything. Pilate realized they were trumped up charges, yet Pilate needed the legal reason, so Pilate put what he had to put on the sign above Jesus, and thereby, whether he realized it or not, certified Jesus' kingship by the Roman government, not just God himself. But the Jewish leaders didn't want Jesus to be called king. It wasn't their wish. It wasn't their desire. What about us? Your next point on your outline says that your opposition does not change his grace. You might not like Jesus to be king. You don't want him to be known as God's son. You don't want him to be known of king forever. You don't want him to be known as your creator, the lover of your soul, the one who died for your sins. There might be a million reasons why you are opposed to me saying that Jesus is king. But what you desire about him is not changed by who he is. Your opposition doesn't change the grace that he gave. The fact that he loved you, that he died for you, and even in your opposition Because of your opposition, he gave himself for you. Would you turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 2? You guys know I love Ephesians chapter 2. I used it as my gospel invitation in our Easter pageant a few years ago. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks to this now. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 
says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used all of us the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Every person who ever lived is summed up right there in those three verses that we were all sinners and our sin earned us the wrath of God because of our sin. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, what's verse 5 said, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Your opposition to who Jesus is does not change his grace. He loves you and he died for you because of your sinfulness. What's it say in verse 6? And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order to show that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No matter how we feel about Jesus, no matter our motives, no matter our desires, it doesn't change the fact that he loved us enough and gave his grace for us. So you've got a question there. How have I fought Jesus? Have you fought against God's grace? Have you fought against God's will? Have you fought against God's love? All of us have. Some of us still are. He gives us this amazing love that as you've heard me say before, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, God loves you. And he offers you grace. That is abundant life here on earth and eternal life in heaven. If you'll only trust him. So Jesus is king no matter our treatment. No matter our motives. No matter our understanding. No matter our desire. Your fifth major point today. Is that Jesus is king no matter your need. No matter your need. Back to our key text. In John chapter 19. Jesus is king no matter your need. Verse 25, 26, and 27. Near the cross, this transition to the what's to follow. Near the cross of Jesus stood, and it names four different ladies. His mother, Mary. His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, it's with a little bit of confusion that it actually may be three ladies because it's attested elsewhere that Mary's sister was married to a guy named Clopas. So, is this somehow wrong? You know, there's no commas in the Greek. There's three to four ladies at the base of the cross. I'm sorry, again, it's not precise. There are some debates on it, but I don't think... The debates on whether it was three ladies or four ladies and how many of them are named Mary at the bottom of the cross matters. 
course, then there's the thing about Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene sometimes has been attested as the sinful woman of Luke 8. There's not any evidence of that, but we do know that she probably had a checkered past and was amazingly transformed by grace, hence her great love for Jesus. So these ladies are at the base of the cross, and then look in verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there, we know who that is, and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, who wrote the Gospel of John. He doesn't call himself by name in a place like this because he doesn't want to brag on himself, but he did have a special relationship with Jesus. It very well may have been that John... The disciple was the youngest of the disciples. He may have been a teenager. And for whatever reason, maybe personality, disposition, maybe his youth, Jesus embraced him a little closer than others. Peter, James, and John, the three inner circle. But even John had a special place in Jesus' heart. So John, the disciple, is here. The women are here. Are any other disciples here? We don't know from this text. But John, his beloved disciple, is here. And look what he says. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here's your son. Now, don't make too much of the fact that he doesn't call her mom or mama. Or some pet name or something like that. Some people have made too much of that. Um, in the Hebrew culture, it was approved, okay, cultural, to call your mom woman. It wasn't like you were being disrespectful to her. But here's the other thing that's happening here. And the reason he may have pronounced this as dear woman. Go on in verse 27. And to the disciple, here is your mother. That sounds kind of formulaic to us, doesn't it? It's because it is. Jesus was making a pronouncement, unofficial though it may have been, but common in their culture to give someone in your family to another family to care for, and you would make a pronouncement just like that. You would say, this is your child, these are your parents, this is your mother, this is your son. However it went, whatever it was, Jesus is speaking in a formula that anybody there would know, oh, he's going to die. He's the eldest son. In our culture, the eldest son takes care of the mother. There's no social security or anything like that. And so since he's going to die, he's saying, you know, mom, this guy here is going to take care of you now. Guy over here, they might not have known who he was, John, the beloved disciple. You're now going to treat her like your mom for the rest of her life. She's yours. Jesus is king no matter your need. Mary's heart had to be breaking. I cannot imagine seeing my child in such pain as Jesus had to be in on the cross. And treated so wickedly by so many people. Her heart had to be breaking to see Jesus there. Yet Jesus, in his strength and with dignity and with solidness or soundness of mind in the spite of the fact that his body was near death makes this legal pronouncement to Mary and to John that your family now 
I'm not going to be here on earth to take care of you anymore, mama. John will take care of you. John will love you like I would love you. John will keep you in his home while you're old and gray. John will be the one that mourns when you are buried. John, mama, I'm looking out for you. She needed John. Jesus knew she needed it. Jesus is king no matter your need, too. You might think the thing that you need in your life is too big for God to care about. You might think, why would God answer that? How could God answer that? I need this to happen in a relationship. I need this amount of money to pay off my debt. I need this kind of margin to make this happen in my life. Jesus knows you need. And God has grace for you. And God has love for you. On the cross, God provided John for Mary through Jesus. What now could God provide for you? Your next point there is that your situation does not change his love. No matter how difficult your situation may seem, God's love doesn't get any less. God's love doesn't get any more. And Jesus does not get any less able to answer the need of your life. That no matter how scary, no matter how difficult, no matter how long, no matter how trying your situation, it doesn't change God's love for you and the fact that He desires to bring a change in you and He desires to bring a change in your situation and He desires to provide for your need. Isn't that amazing? Romans 8, 32 says, God didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us. God loves you. God will provide for you. Your final question, how much does Jesus love me? I want to use scripture to help answer that question for us, and I want you to write them down to Galatians chapter 3. Turn back in your Bible to Galatians. So get through John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 helps answer this question for us. How much does God love us? Verse 10. It says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. In other words, we're up the creek if all we have is the law. But verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on the tree. Look at verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How much does God love us? He sent Jesus to die for us. And that Jesus paid the penalty that we couldn't pay of the law. Here in Galatians, turn back to one more scripture, back to 1 John again, right towards the end of your Bible, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4.10. How much does Jesus love me? This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's how much God loves you. Let's pray. Our Father, we're humbled when we think about Jesus' life and his death. And that his death on the cross means so much to us because of what it does for us. And that he's king no matter how we feel, no matter what we want, no matter what we need, no matter how we treat him, that Jesus is king. And whether Pilate understood it right or not, proclaiming him king of the Jews, it is the truth. That he's not just king for Jewish people. He's king for all people. As our final scriptures in Galatians reminded us. So God our Father, it's our prayer. That each of us would turn to Jesus. For whatever we need. Not trying to manipulate or use him. But to humbly come before him. That he might change us, that he might change the situation, might work a miracle, that you would get the glory. And God, our Father, it's our prayer that that miracle may need to be someone trusting Christ as their Savior and Lord. They've lived life their own way. They've made their share of mistakes. They've hurt themselves and they've hurt others. And yet, you love them and they need to surrender. And if there's somebody here like that today, whether it's a child or a teenager, an adult, would they make that commitment today? To God our Father, we thank you for your love for us. We worship you and your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray.